Hey, Carson. Hey, Rav. Hey, what's up, man? How's it going? Doing okay. Just sitting out in a nice garden right now and down to have a chat. Hey, can you say that again? Sorry? Yeah, I'm just, just sitting out in a garden right now, ready to go. Nice. Awesome. Great. Yeah, I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation. I've been really inspired by Kendrick Lamar's new music and especially the song Father Time. I think, um, goes into the very topics that I'm exploring for the first time in my life. And so it was really, it was really gratifying just on a personal level to see our paths kind of converge. You know, he's obviously much older than I am. I think he's 31 or 32 and he's just for the first time getting into therapy and looking at his childhood and I'm doing the exact same thing. So it's, it's really cool to, to see that and to see many other people around me. And I think broadly speaking with the pandemic as well, seeing a lot of people take proactive steps to heal themselves and look at their childhood traumas. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a great time for that, isn't it? Like there's just a lot of waking up and, and how cool for you to, to see like sort of a musical hero kind of suddenly reflecting back, you know, the very thing you're going through. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. And I think the people that we have so far know about you. Um, if and when more people come, possibly, then I'll maybe give them more um, or just give you a, a formal introduction when that happens. Um, yeah, yeah, but, sure. Yeah, but for now, people know you. You're the director of Thrive Downtown, a clinic that does um, amazing work, specializes in psychedelic integration therapy. And that's where I go and I'm doing my work. Um, so it's, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, um, to, to continue working with the clinic and, and to have some of your insights here into these very deep psychological things that Kendrick is delving into. Yeah, for sure. Well, great. Thanks for that little plug for, for thriving all the work we do. And, you know, this, this is the fun part though, right? We could kind of look at, look at music and culture and just kind of ex- exactly just sort of enjoy the. Enjoy the messages, right? It's it's nice. Yeah. Before we get into the song, the the one thing that I've been thinking a lot about with respect to Kendrick's album, and also just broadly speaking, before this album came out, it's it's really neat how, again, my thoughts and my explorations are aligning with Kendrick and what he's doing. But this is something I've been kind of broadly thinking about, about the role of religion and the role of psychotherapy. Mm. And those, those two things they're not as separate as some people think and they're not also as uh, they're not also the same as other people may think they, they they you know they have many points of convergence but also many points of divergence and i think some people um who may need some sort of spiritual practice or connection may be neglecting that in their lives other people might be looking to get something out of religion that may not be able to be found there at all when it comes to like childhood traumas, when it comes to healing deep mm. wounds, you know, and, and again, yeah. this, this territory, it, 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 there's kind of a Venn diagram here and, you know, many things, if not like all things that we deal with in therapy that clinical psychology aims at healing, a lot of those things are addressed in religion in very beautiful and healing ways as well. Um, and in Kendrick, just for people who, who may not be familiar with him or with hip hop music in general, 
Kendrick is somebody who is this kind of savior type of figure. That's kind of how he looks at himself. And that's kind of the position that society has put on him because his music is not just music. It's really high level art. It's like his albums are these multi-dimensional linear narratives with a beginning, middle and end. Oftentimes they have kind of a hero's journey kind of twisting throughout the, the plot of the album. Uh, his album, Good Kid, Mad City, which was um, his first uh, platinum release in, 20, in 2012. And that was all about him being this, this good kid escaping this very mad city that was infested with gang violence, drug dealing, intergenerational poverty, issues with policing, issues with family. And so the whole album um, plays through these very specific stories, actually. One including Kendrick and his friends committing an armed robbery and the song is called The Art of Peer Pressure. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. that one, Carson. Yeah, yeah. A no, brilliant song with, with a, a really tight narrative. <laughs> it's just as much of a, a an allegory or a short story um, as it is a song. And it, in the song, he's he, he's obviously, it's, it's about peer pressure. So he, he talks, I forget what exactly the um, the chorus was, but there's this inner voice in him that's saying something like, I don't want to do this. This is not who I am. Um, and then it says, but I'm with the homies. And it repeats that over and over again. Something like, I was never this kind of person. I never wanted to do this, but I'm with the homies. And so we are now committing this armed robbery at 12 a.m. at night or whatever. And then the police come and the sirens are ringing and they barely just make it out and the police don't catch them. Uh, but in the end, Kendrick, uh, he ODs from marijuana that was likely laced with um, cocaine. And he almost dies, but thankfully it wasn't lethal. Mm. Um, but, but that whole tale is just kind of this karmic cycle of him doing bad, him committing this crime, and then at the end, him reaping the consequences of his actions in this almost you know near-deadly way, which would have cost him his life and all this beautiful music we're getting. Yeah. Um, and towards the end of that album, um, the, the, the album kind of ends with Kendrick coming home to uh, Christianity, m- meeting this mysterious woman in some parking lot who, um, and it's, it's hard to know how much of this is fictional, how much is exaggerated, but whatever it is, it's definitely inspired by real life, obviously, and it's very beautiful. Um, but towards the end of the album, there is this woman who um, recognizes Kendrick and recognizes recognizes that he's going through a very hard time and introduces faith to him and introduces to him a way out of this intergenerational trauma and offers him the Bible and asks him to commit to the path of Jesus Christ. And Kendrick uh, emphatically does and commits to this way of living a spiritual life, living for the grace of God rather than his own uh, hedonistic um, primal kind of instincts that he has that manifests with not just violence, but also sexuality. There's this character of Shireen that appears throughout the album, Kendrick pursuing this girl at the cost of everything else, including spirituality, including ethics and morals. Um, Anyway, I'm I'm just kind of laying this out for people who don't know. Um, That that album set up Kendrick as a very spiritual person, a very religious person, and uh, To Pimp a Butterfly and Dam further explored these themes of Kendrick exploring his faith um, and understanding the way of Jesus more and more closely. And some of his lyrics, like, like they're, they're very uh, layered, intricately crafted and retelling certain 
allegories from the Bible. I remember talking to uh, one of my good friends, Rob Boganovic, who was a former high school teacher. And I was showing him some Kendrick Lamar lyrics. <clears throat> and he's a very conservative Christian person, and he has no interest in hip hop. But he was reading some of the lyrics, and um, and he was saying that Kendrick is one of the most sophisticated Christian contemplative thinkers that he's ever came across mm. because of how much depth were in Kendrick's lyrics. And he was surprised that this was rap music, actually. He's like, is this not like something else? Like, how, how is a rapper capable of doing something like this? Because every line kind of alluded to different parts of this specific allegory. I think it was the um, allegory of the... I'm just looking this up quickly. Sheep and the goats in the Bible. There's a beautiful story. Parable of the sheep. The parable of the sheep and the goats, um, which is all about um, prompting Christians to take action, to help those in need and not being blind to the suffering that's around them. So anyway, Kendrick has been this incredibly religious person. He's been very involved in his faith. He's been very committed on this Christian path. But now on this album, there's actually very little of that. And there's a lot of exploration and therapy. And and this is kind of where I want to bring you in before we get into some of the specific lyrics of, you know, Kenrick has been a very religious man, but it seems like that has not healed these deep wounds that he has. And so now he's searching for something deeper, um, something that, that arguably would align with the faith because you know, God can manifest in different ways, not just through reading the Bible or attending church, but also through therapy work, right? All, all these things kind of come together, hopefully, and kind of align in this beautiful way. And I think that's one thing that perhaps many religious people may uh, struggle with or may be kind of blind to, that they're really struggling, they're really depressed, they have a lot of anxiety, they have a lot of trauma, but they're sort of fixated within their faith um, and and not not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but that possibly or likely the solutions that they're looking for are not going to be found within just the church alone, but also through psychotherapy. And I'm curious, Carson, if you've had a bit of experience, if you want to talk broadly, any clinical experience with religious people who have come in, whether they're Christian, Muslim, Sikh, whatever, who have been really struggling and have found their faith to almost kind of box them in and prevent them from actually seeking out counseling or psychedelic work or, or anything else within the broad realm of psychotherapy. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, you know, you're, you're naming that people can kind of go in one direction or, or the other that you have people who pursue therapy and the next steps of the path, they start to wake up to maybe viewing the spiritual dimensions and then there's the story of somebody very spiritually tied, and then they kind of realize how much the how much the childhood stuff uh, still lingers in the nervous system. And Kendrick Lamar is is maybe the latest great kind of telling that story, but it's been around a while. Like he, John Lennon was a, a famous person who waxed spiritual with the Beatles, and then in his kind of last album. Uh, when he's a solo artist, he was just decrying the heavens and talking about how it's all mom and dad stuff. He was doing his primal scream therapy. And you can just sort of see the different orders uh, people go in. But, you know, my encouragement is just to take the metaphor of there's there's the earth and heaven. And, and you kind of have to tend to both, right? The, the The spiritual dimension of being right with existence and how you come to understand it is 
that's a, a, a piece of your bigger health. But if you neglect to fertilize the earth, you know, your body, the somatic, the nervous system that springs from, from your early interactions, then you, you're not arguably kind of in, in a complete path of healing. And to your question, yeah, a, a, fair, a fair amount of folks, especially in Vancouver, come in with, with uh, you know, it could, there, there's been like organized religious approaches um, with um, Christianity and Sikhism, but also a lot of kind of new age spiritual types who, who just sort of take this eclectic approach. And while I have like personally very rooted spiritual um, experience that's important to me, I kind of have a radar for when sometimes it can show up as as a bit of a toxic positivity and and i don't know if everyone knows that term but it refers to when you're you're feeling some darker stuff that you need to look at you know you you feel grief or anger but you constantly just repeat but i'm so grateful everything's fine it's so wonderful to be alive meanwhile there's a vein popping out of someone's forehead because they they need to sort of look at the deeper deeper pieces so oftentimes I find it's just sort of an orientation to religion itself. Is, is it, is, is the relationship with God one that looks into the shadows and, and we're, we're really moving into those places or is it kind of being leveraged in a way where we call it a spiritual bypass where God will make it all okay. And, and I don't need to explore some of those dark shadowy caves. And those are those that Lamar on the new album it's just there, there's these wonderful rays of light coming out in the second half, but man, there's some shadowy caves that he he throws himself right into, and I love it. Mm. And do you have any kind of specific examples? Um, I, I know we didn't talk about this before the podcast, but anything that kind of comes to mind with your experience? People who are very religious who come in who are really wounded and realize that they've been sort of missing something that's right in front of them because they may be a little too lost within their own religion. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. Um, I don't know, a, a gentleman just comes to mind from, I, I think, three or four years ago, who really stands out. And he, he was just emphatic about being grateful um, to God. And But I was finding, the you know, when I'm around people who have like a really tight relationship with divinity, I feel very relaxed because they they've done their shadow work and that there's just sort of a mature piece about it. Um, the Franciscans, especially the, the kind of Christians with that background, I just vibe with, but around this, this guy, I just felt really tense. Like part of me was saying, I don't buy it because th- there was just, his eyes were communicating deep fear and almost a fear of a punitive God. If he didn't constantly give thanks. And it was just through the, the gentle untying of sitting together and, you know, of course, giving a reverence to God, but just unallowing that it's okay to it's okay to feel your feelings, man. Um, part of you know the the exploration of the deeper stuff. It's part of the journey of divinity, and it was nice to see him relax a little bit and just step into the the world of ordinary reality and you know talk about unmet emotional needs. And the the great thing is, like I just felt after six or seven sessions. I just could feel my system relaxing because there was this honesty. Um, he was able to say, I am angry at my mother for not protecting me from my abusive dad. And 
he could say that and still feel as a child of God without feeling he was betraying. Incidentally, um, he, he came to realize that the, the fear of the punitive God actually had to do with a lot of projections uh, that had to do with his dad. So don't even get me started on when you don't heal your, your kind of mom and dad injuries, how much you can actually project that onto the cosmos and, and come to experience um, the world or, or even the universe as, as, a, as a punishing one when um, it has more to do with your childhood. That, that's, a, that's a template that certainly pops up. Mm. Yeah, and there's, one, there's a couple of analogies that I've thought about with respect to religion and psychotherapy. Well, what one is kind of like, if you want to get shredded, if you want a six pack of abs, of course, it's important to have good nutrition and eat really well, eat your protein. But in order to get the six pack of abs, you have to put the work in the gym, you have to exercise. And, you know, you can't just be just in the, in the nutrition world and expect to get um, super fit, you need the exercise. And so when you're dealing with these deep psychological wounds, you know, uh, religion is definitely going to help with that, I think. And going to church the, or, or the temple or the mosque or wherever, having that sense of community, that connection, dealing with you know, different parts of yourself in that spiritual sense is very important. But if all you're doing is maybe fixating so much on something bigger than yourself that that makes you devalue or deprioritize what's within yourself and the issues that you have, then you're not really going to be making that deep progress towards inner healing. And I also think like many religions, especially in Christianity, rightfully talk a lot about helping your neighbor, um, uh, alleviating the suffering of others, doing charity, helping your neighbor. That's emphasized a lot within Hinduism and Sikhism as well. And there's this one guru I follow who, who's amazing. And, and he, he says, rightfully, I think, like, when you're feeling your lowest, go out and serve other people. Go see what mm. you can do for other people. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. But I think that alone can, again, prevent you from looking at the deeper parts of yourselves, the, the deeper parts of yourself and healing these deep wounds that you have. So, so maybe sometimes it's the case that religions may overemphasize kind of helping others and and we fail to recognize what's kind of within us and so we're never able to come to grips with our past trauma yeah yeah precisely like i've seen a lot of very spiritual folks terrified of their own anger and uh kind of of this but you know because like the dalai lama is famous for talking about anger as sort of just like like poo-pooing that emotion like it's bad however it's just such an oversimplification. You know, the righteous anger that defends your well-being and even your inner child is absolutely critical. And just because a lot of people had angry, wrathful fathers, that, that scary relationship pops up. So, yeah, we, we, we need that full spectrum of, uh, of emotional content. And again, in I, I know this is like, who am I to pass this judgment? But folks who came across as mature religious uh, individuals... Um, you can read Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward, to get a, a great definition of that. But I've seen them integrate their their range of emotion and, and kind of have an okayness with self rather than that just like, let's just bypass it and only feel positive emotions, which is, uh, in my estimation, quite a fearful relationship to self and to the universe. Yeah, exactly. And this is another kind of tangential question I'm going to throw at you, broadly speaking. So- Nice. Let's see, let, let, let's see if it sticks and if you can come up with an answer. But 
Um, yeah. do, you, do you kind of have any example or any examples that you may think of um, <laughs> off the top of your head, which deal with like, like religious people who may have done psychedelic therapy specifically and may have then uh, later developed a deeper relationship with faith or come to a, a, a different understanding of faith or of their deeper issues. And I, and I say that because I was recently listening to uh, Neil Brennan, which Carson and I, we talked a little bit about. Yeah. Neil Brennan is a great comedian and he's been uh, struggling with depression for many years and he did a few ayahuasca retreats and I, th I think it was his third or fourth ayahuasca retreat and, and he, and he's atheist. So this is a bit of a different case, but after that third or fourth ayahuasca retreat, he finally realized what all of his Catholic schooling and all of the church services that he went to that made him very cynical about religion were actually getting at. And he said he was able to find God and then later channelize that through um, more concrete forms of religion and spirituality. But I'm curious, Carson, if you, in the realm of psychedelics, if we can go there for a couple minutes, if um, you could think of anything in mind of somebody very religious who may have done psychedelics and have benefited from it greatly. Yeah, you know, I, the people I've seen take them mostly have been people who are already very open uh, to them integrating into their spiritual path. So somebody who followed a classical religion and then had like a macro experience that was beyond micro dosing, nothing comes to mind. The closest thing I can think to is I, I'm, I am uh, good friends with a, a pastor uh, who is local who just expressed a real openness. God, I love the guy it, it, to micro dosing and even to five MEO DMT. And he's tried some micro doses. Um, he, he has like this wonderful humility to even say, you know, we preach and I know we're not getting it all right. We're just humans. And he's, he's like, I'm open to when I told him about my five MEO DMT experiences and how I kind of came to experience God, he's sort of said, I want to see it. And I'd, uh, you know, I'd be really curious to, to see that happen. But I, in my work, it's been very non-psychedelic with, with uh, religious folks. So still waiting for that, that, to see inevitably what that looks like. I've only read lots of accounts um, in, in research studies and, and that uh, folks who have a, like a, a, a religious background near end of life tend to experience their symbols of divinity in their, in their kind of transpersonal states. So the, the deities that symbolize divinity tend to come to them. And I would, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that with maybe a, a, an aging person who's of a, of a certain faith. And I'll tell you when I do. Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, th there's one person I know who I spoke to recently, and I, and I want to check back in with them at some point. And she um, wa worked in, in Christian ministry, and she has a theology degree, and she became um, like a leader of some Christian youth group. Um, and very late in life, very recently, she did her first mushroom trip because she was very depressed um and and she kind of realized that she was kind of banging against um a wall with her religion and just just the kind of organization you might say or just the maybe the culture of religion not not the you know the bible itself doesn't say don't do counseling don't do this this or that <laughs> um, obviously <laughs> you know but, but but within the organization of religion there 
that there might be certain incentives and certain ideas about, you know, th- th- this is the way that you um, heal these deep wounds. Um, although, you know, various surgeries that I've been to um, are much more open about that, which I love. And I think that's very important. Um, but she is finally coming to grips with some childhood trauma. And, uh, she, and she said her first psychedelic trip uh, with mushrooms was incredible mm. and really op- opened the doors of perception for her and uh, revealed some of the, the deeper things about her childhood trauma and her relationship with her parents that she was really uh, burying and kind of hiding unconsciously in service of God, not realizing that she that she's unable to be there for other people around her and to actually actually alleviate their suffering because she's still hurting on the inside, but she's not recognizing it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Like I, again, I come back to this, but I think the mark of, of people really moving into to trust a party is is a humility and letting go of the wheel and insisting as humans that we <laughs> in our in our kind of religious congregations that we've mapped out and figured out God. Like nothing could seem more uh, small and arrogant than that. So I think when people humble themselves and, and try new pathways into self and and understanding the universe like what a way to let let go of control and see what god really has to say and i'm just gonna say this um vaguely that one of my good friends who's a youth pastor um who's uh, listening to this on and off he just said he's really enjoying the conversation and enjoying your insights so i'm glad that this is uh connecting with people um of that background so let's keep going <laughs> All right, so shall we talk about the song now, Carson? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I think we're we're set up. Sorry, yeah, yeah. And did you just get what I said? Sorry, there was a bit of a lag there. Oh, you know what? I might, you 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 mentioned your friend, and, and I, I I think I missed the little piece. If that's oh like no worries, none. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of my good friends, he's a youth pastor, and he's yeah. listening to this, and he, and he just texted me saying that it, uh, he's really enjoying the conversation. So uh, I'm glad this is uh, connecting with people. Let's. Uh, keep it going <laughs> okay beautiful that's a really funny time for me to not hear that it must have sounded weird when i just like didn't, <laughs> didn't acknowledge it at all um th- thank you very much to your friend who's listening and i, I hope this continues to be uh, stimulating yeah all right so right at the in the intro of the song um father time uh it's kendrick's girlfriend and she says you really need some therapy and then kendrick says real n-word need no therapy what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> um, and then his girlfriend says, yeah, well, you need to talk to somebody. Reach out to Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle, who's, a, mm-hmm. who's a, an amazing meditation teacher, a practitioner of mindfulness. Um, really enjoy listening to him. But, but she's encouraging him to go to therapy, and he's resistant towards that idea. And I think that really represents kind of men generally. Like a lot of men, like it's sad that it takes their partners, spouses, girlfriends, or moms to encourage them to go to therapy because they feel like, you know, that that's not what men do. You know, men don't sit with their feelings. Men go and work out at the gym and go, you know, drive fancy cars and listen to music and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you know, men are not supposed to actually deal with their feelings and cry and journal and do these things. So can you speak a little bit about that dynamic that I'm sure you've thought a lot about because you early on your clinic was specializing in men's in men's healing, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the last 16 years I've been researching and practicing in, in men's work. So this is sort of old, um, old hat by now, but the, the socialization of men since the agricultural revolution has distanced them from their emotions and, and really created a sort of shame relationship to the authentic expression of vulnerability. And, you know, when I even hear this, I, I'm both like, I'm sad to hear it's still going on, but I'm happy it's getting more exposure and uh, it should also be noted, like, while this album is such a, um, it's such an ode to everybody and, and especially kind of men in that prison, it's especially prevalent in the historical black culture where the idea of seeing a therapist and, and the, the, the sort of um, stepping down from that, that kind of hyper masculinity in response to a lot of like uh, cultural trauma, it's even amplified. So I, I love how these lines really speak to black culture and yet extend the hand out to sort of masculinity across um across all kind of racial backgrounds it's saying so much at once yeah exactly um okay so some of the the um so he says that there's just so much interesting stuff in here so i'm just gonna have to pick pick whatever i see that's most interesting um he says daddy issues made me learn losses i don't take those well mama said that boy is exhausted he said go fuck yourself if he gives up now that's gonna cost him life's a bitch you could be a bitch or step out the margin um that and that and i think that that's a really interesting section of the song which shows the kind of dynamic between mom and dad you know the dads are very much about just kind of brushed off your shoulders you're fine you can get over this moms can be a little more empathetic obviously you know women tend to be much more higher on the empathy scale and so his, his mom yeah. is saying you know you're exhausted maybe you need rest or whatever but his dad is like no no if you give up now and you know give into your feelings sit with your feelings um and and kind of if, if i were to represent him you know you know what he's trying to get at which th there's some merit in is if you just sit and brood in your own feelings and you become a victim and you're crying and um, doing that at the exclusion of your work, you know, going to school or, or whatever it is, then you're, you're not making progress. You're just um, going to be kind of stagnant. And that's not really what men are supposed to do. Men are supposed to get up and work and, you know, make money and do this, this and that. And I've definitely felt that um, in my family as well. And, and I'm not here to pass any value judgment about my mom or my dad. They're, they're wonderful people and they have their issues like everybody. But that is a dynamic I felt as well. Um, that, that obviously, you know, you know, my dad has expressed some of this, and that's been passed on by his dad and his dad. So these things have a long trail. But there, there is this idea of um, if you sit too much with your feelings and spend too much time with 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 counseling and inner healing, then that that's kind of a sign of of, of giving up and giving into your feelings. Mm. And and you do want to be productive in your work life, so. If you spend so much time with your feelings, then um, that's gonna that's gonna cost your work life, which is the most kind of important indicator of you as a human being. Which which I think is a very toxic idea. But uh, here, here Kendrick is alluding to that, and I've experienced that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's just it, again such a a good point. Um, the identity of men just being reduced to your value through what you do, which in just sort of the last generation like the our our dads it was just like i couldn't throw a dime without hitting a guy who had 
you know, a kind of a, a softy mom and then a, and a hard ass dad who um, hypervalued the doing and downplayed emotions. It was just so, uh, so common. And again, it made, it made sense. It's not like these, these dads are just broken that, that like tough repressed orientation fit the context of their generation, especially when grandpas, they didn't know a thing about like, you know, it, it was all the basics of, of work. That's how you showed love. And this, this kind of generation we have, that's waking up to the, you know, the, the nature of emotions that's, that's just so new. So, you know, it, I, I, it's like the dads were right then we're right now. How do we find a way to all just be okay with each other's sort of cultural emergence, even if we see the world different, especially when a lot of dads did have the, it's gotta be this way, son, like there's, sorry, there's no wiggle room. And why wouldn't they, they, they didn't have a map to anything else. Um, I, I love, you know, I love the hell out of my dad, but, uh, he, he didn't know how to, you know, he, he did his absolute best and God, I love him for it. But he, he just had no equipment to, to do anything but be incredibly tough and want his boy to be really tough too. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to weave in the, the religion part in here as well, because uh, knowing Kendrick's music so well, he, he's rapped a lot about how you know, going to church on Sundays was a big part of his lifestyle. And that's a big part of very conservative kind of black communities as well. You, I've heard uh, many uh, scholars, sociologists talk about this, um, about it's certain black communities, um, the, uh, the, the, the devotion towards God and towards Jesus is, is often much higher than in any other community that you could find, which um, kind of ties to historical oppression and kind of overcoming that through religion and whatnot. But, mm. but, that, but, but that aside, for Kendrick, he, growing up, he's been dealing with all this trauma and violence and drug dealing. And, and I won't go too much into the, the autobiographical. I'm going to try to keep this more universal. But, but, you know, going to church for him was kind of the only outlet to kind of deal with his issues. You know, you pray to God, you read yeah. scriptures, you read the Bible, you learn from Jesus, and you go to church every Sunday, and, and that's that. Otherwise, when his mom says, the boy is exhausted, his dad says, go fuck yourself. Don't give up now. You know, go, go, to, go to school go to whatever basketball practice, don't be a bitch, you know, keep yeah. going. You know, that's, you know, that's a big problem, I think, especially because if, if all you're doing is work and you're not giving enough time to, to inner healing, then the work is going to suffer too. And family is going to suffer. Relationships are going to suffer. Kendrick in this album is talking a lot about patterns of trauma that are reemerging that no amount of fame, no amount of money is going to take away. You know, Kendrick is at the pinnacle of hip hop success. Mm. I, I think personally, he's the greatest rapper alive. M many people think that he's won the Pulitzer prize for music. The first rap artist to do that. He's at the top of his game. He has no material or financial issues. seems like he's a very loyal and loving wife and he's got two kids. And so he, he has a, uh, he has his family figured out. He has his work figured out, but he's still hurting on the inside. So that goes to show that, you know, because he's put his feelings on the side and worked so hard, he's been able to achieve this incredible amount of success. But now he's realizing that that isn't going to take away all this pain that's buried in his unconscious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, w I would agree with that. And, you know, he, he comes and, and sort of puts out an album like this, which I think 
strikes a depth of like okay kid cuddy his very first record man on the moon did a lot it had a lot of similar responses because he threw himself on the the fire of vulnerability and it it you know it it kind of became a cult classic for that but this album reaches even just into the a raw more literal place i know i'm kind of getting off of that specific song but it's just the whole album has that like just visceral arguments that just take you into the dark places and yeah there's just such an honesty that a a, a a pinnacle rapper like that who has everything is hurting inside so i just think it's quite a gift gift to give and, and what do you think about this broad this broad uh, theme that we see play out in so many people's lives i've seen it in my parents lives i, I see it a bit with me which maybe I'll get to in a second, but you know, so many people there, there, you know, they go to school, they get their undergrad degree, their grad degrees, maybe get a PhD or go to a law firm, become a doctor. And, you know, they're going through the motions and they're, they're, they're hyper-focused on their career. And then they, they, they as they age and go into adulthood, they, they realize that they've totally put their inner life, their inner lives on pause or have totally neglected them. And it's gotten worse and so they end up they end up not being able to put in the, sorry not put into their career what they're actually capable of mm. because of them neglecting their uh, emotions and, and I think that the the idea behind that is is like if you focus too much on your emotions and into what's going on inside then you know your the the work might be slower then you might not be able to be as productive in school, let's say, or uh, in your work atmosphere, you, you know, your, your, your career is going to slow down a little bit if you spend so much time with, with inner healing, right? Like obviously everything in life is an opportunity cost, right? If you like, like with anything good, anything bad, right? If you're, if you really love working out and you're working out five days a week, which is great, you know, obviously you're spending more time doing that versus let's say spending time with your family. Like there's yeah. so many, you know, finding the right balance in life is so important. Yeah, but I think yeah. I think I think this is a very prevalent thing for kind of kind of everybody, really. Like, like how many people actually spend a lot of time um, going into their childhood and really understanding their emotions and their identity? Like, it strikes me that very very few people actually are doing that in our society because our society very much encourages you know success and more and more output more and more uh, work, you know, more creativity, more projects, more income. You know, it's, it's all about increasing uh, wealth, increasing your, your fame, your status, and, and then using that to, you know, help your family. And, and, if, and for some people, um, rising up from poverty, you know, all the focus is there, but that's at the cost of uh, the, the kind of the deeper emotional work that I think more and more people need to be doing. Oh, oh yeah, there's just such an imbalance, you know, if you think uh, of the yin and yang dimensions, we've just got such a yang society focused on doing, accomplishing, grasping, striving status. And, you know, in, in 10 years of clinical work, I, like I see, I see the other side, some guys w- would come in and say, I, I, something's not working. I don't like this, but 
it's not my career. I'm not changing the work stuff. I don't want to change those things. Um, I'm not, I, I really need to work out six days a week. That keeps me up. I, I'm not looking to, you know, have a serious relationship. And I say, okay, so you're burning out, you're miserable, but we don't, we don't want to change anything though. Um, so, so what do you want to, what, what, what should we do? Right. And go to the gym more. More yeah, well, go to, exactly. You know, you gotta, you gotta just, but, um, the, you know, but a part of them is showing up and saying a very wise part, which I believe is their heart is saying, Hey, are you still listening? And you what I think you would really enjoy is the stories of, I, so for the last 10 years, I've worked with groups of military veterans. Um, most of them have been male because the, the kind of distribution of the armed forces is mostly male, but we, we get the guys show up where everything you're describing, like the traumatization of there's a lot, believe it or not, there's a lot in common with the traumatization of black communities and of, um, of military veterans, just in this, the hyper masculinization. And in this case, we have guys so obsessed with doing everything is just down to like clockwork, but then you know, over this 10 day program about halfway in one guy will start to seriously just let it out. And you think they're traumatized in, in war and they are, but almost all of them end up talking about their childhoods and how something hurt. Someone went away. Something was distant. There was, I was never good enough. And then when the tears start seeing these just hard as nails, men start to get soft and nice it just makes the world feel safer. It, I, I, I extinguished my fear of men through these courses because I saw they're all kids. We're all kids. We're all sensitive kids who just got bunk messages that it's not okay to feel the range of the feelings that actually bring us closer. So when you see two, uh, an, an army guy and an air force guy by day nine, bring out like their teddy bear that they're going to show everybody. And then a the guy says, actually, I, I didn't want to tell you guys, but I have a, I have a teddy bear too. You, you just start to realize there's a, a real strong waking up process. And part of why this album just landed so well is Kendrick has the platform of a lifetime and he could have flexed. He, he's such a good rapper. He could have just, just dropped bar after bar, but he chose to engage a type of storytelling that f- takes a, a bunch of people and just lets them out of their cage. And, and that's, I think that's great. Mm. Yeah, and of course, Kendrick has done that before in the typical kind of braggadocious hip-hop way. Um, he, he has a very kind of theatrical approach to hip-hop where he likes playing different characters, and yeah. what, which I love. It's a very, it's a very, it's truly Shakespearean in many ways. because It, 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 it yeah. is, and I, I would say there's even a, a there's like a an irony or a satire as he puts on the masks of these characters. Like, he's not committed to saying, this is what I am. He says, this is a part of me, and in, in like the you know, the art of peer pressure song, he just says, this is something we all do with our conscience. And he, he puts on these masks just to show the range of like what we can be. And this is, this is totally tangential, but I was listening to Alan Watts the other day, explain the idea of Hinduism, which kind of goes beyond just Hinduism and just broadly speaking, different interpretations of God. But this idea within Hinduism and in other parts of Christianity or other religions of this, this cosmic drama that God is playing all these different roles, different characters. And, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, as Watts was saying, Hindu gurus and yogis, they're, they're always happy. They're always smiling. It's because they see God within everybody. 
they see all these different masks, even in, in a great suffering and in great turmoil, they see this is another manifestation of the divine. This is another manifestation of what human beings are capable of doing. And so kind of like seeing how all these different parts um, of the human experience manifest themselves and really kind of represent what's within, you know, like Kendrick representing all these different characters, a lot of these things, it's, it's, it's a manifestation of all these different facets of his own personality, which is very multi, multi-dimensional. You know, you know, many people, I, I think Sam Harris talks about this as well, for, for him specifically, how he says when he talks to certain people, his humor channel is super loud and he's joking around and having fun. And then I think he was kind of naively sort of questioning and wondering <laughs> this kind of hilarious way with this. Um, I think he was talking to Adi Ashanti on his meditation app and saying mm-hmm. that how, you know, when he's with other people, when he's having an intellectual conversation, he's not able to channelize any kind of like joy, humor, laughter, kind of childish behavior. And it's like, we, we all have these different um, characters that we play. And I think coming to grips with what they represent and how to be, more and more true to what we want to be is crucial to living a, a happy and well-examined life. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the work, so much of it is removing shame and fear. Uh, so they, all these roles and for the spiritual sage, uh, I think it was, uh, might've been Merlin, like a quote from the fictional Merlin, but you're destined to play an infinity of roles none of which are truly who you are and just to, yeah, to be able to play them, be playful about it, um, let go. And I think one of the crises for men is the terror of playing a role that doesn't fit that classic hegemonic masculinity. Um, you know, a lot of the research I, I conducted back in, in, in 2008 was about the fear of the feminine and the fear of well, what Carl Jung would call the anima, but just like the, the feminine aspect, you know, the, the um the 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 black dot in the center of the the white uh yang icon like we all have and we need to become friends with but just what do we do when femininity flows through us in a healthy form and and yet we're terrified of it well we become rigid we we will um be terrified of seeing uh feminine sensitivity pop up in our in our boys and we'll traumatize them out of ever doing it again and that's what so much of this album is about and father time especially yeah, so let's really drill down on childhood and suppressing emotions in childhood. I think there's a lot to talk about there. And I'm just going to read another part of the song here. In verse 2, Kendrick says, A child that grew accustomed, jumping up when I scraped my knee, because if I cried about it, he'd surely tell me not to be weak. Daddy issues, hid my emotions, never express myself. Men should never show feelings. Being sensitive never helped. And then he goes into a little bit of a, a, a micro story of uh, his father, um, his father's mom dying, his grandma dying. And he's asking his dad, uh, why did you go to work so soon? And his reply was, son, that's life. The bills got no silver spoon. <laughs> As in, the, the bills are not going to be fed to you. With this, They're not just going to come to you to work hard um, to, to be successful in this world. So, let, you know, let's talk about that. Um, specifically the um, not expressing emotions as a man, you know, when you're. Hello. Hey, can you hear me? Am I back? Yeah. Sorry. I was just getting a call that I was trying to reject. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I know this multitasking and technology. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sorry, I was just going to finish my thought that we. Yeah. Um, but what I want to talk about there is um, the the cost of suppressing suppressing emotions as a as a young male teenager and having your you know your dad sort of you know your dad your mom whoever it is force you into not expressing that part of yourself for fear of um, for fear of being sensitive which is not um, a trait that's that's associated with being um, a good powerful strong male in our society mm-hmm. yeah and and again you know like i i worked with a in my healing a, a a psychedelic plant called iboga and it just it did a lot of dad related healing uh, in combination with just having hard talks with my dad that neither of us wanted to have but in doing so like i came i i used to have a lot of resentment and anger i needed to feel about kind of feeling um yeah suppressed in some ways for for the sensitivity that i've really come to like about myself but now my lens is different i see how my dad's just to, I'm turning this into a case study of myself, but his, cause he's such a prime example of like a, a classically socialized man. Um, his fearful relationship to the sensitive and to emotions was his best strategy to protect me from just getting swallowed alive. Um, in his life, he had to deal with big trauma and sensitivity. He would just would have gotten pulled underwater by a shark if he, if he, had his full range of emotions out all the time. And so naturally, mm. very, very lovingly, he wants to say, here's the roadmap to, and, and you don't, you don't be that way. And yet, you know, of course there, there's big errors in there because that roadmap of the last generation really just doesn't fit a lot of the times when we have a crisis of men scared of intimacy and their, their partners want to like drag them into, into therapy to work on it. Um, so we have to say, thank you, dad. In, in our ways, like for what you've done, what you've done, but that just doesn't fit. And, um, you know, this idea of father hunger, as James Hollis put it, a lot of us actually who do the healing really want to invite our dads to a different way of life where that like, uh, sensitivity can exist. And, um, and a lot of the, the old, there's a natural process where men age and, you know, 50, 60, they just start to become more sensitive and realize the warmth of the hearth and, and family is actually the most important thing. And a lot of men who at least even had just enough healing on their deathbed will say the things they really uh, kept in and, and express love. Um, it was a bit of a tangential response there, Rev. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I, I really want to drill down on, you know, not expressing your emotions in childhood. Like, mm. What does that like? What does that do to a child? Like I, I'm exploring this very personally, by the way, um, and having all sorts of different realizations about how a lot of the behavior that I have right now, good and bad, some very very good, productive um, behavior that's led to a lot of success, um, which I can talk a, a bit more about in a minute, but but also other forms of behavior. Um, that are really toxic and are really kind of hurting me. And so, you know, you know, what are the costs of not really understanding your emotions as a kid and living in an environment where it's, where it's not safe to express your emotions because of well, whatever issues are going on between your parents or poverty or violence or drug dealing or, you know, whatever's going on. What, what, you know, what really happens when you don't give emotions the space they need? 
you know, do they manifest like in your experience, do they manifest in, in all sorts of toxic uh, and also good behaviors in childhood, like extreme kind of striving for, for career um, or other ways kind of looking for things in relationships that, um, that are, are toxic and kind of counterproductive. And then, you know, and the, and the solution to that really being looking to your childhood and understanding how, you know, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm acting this way. I'm, I'm very desperate, let's say, or I'm very attached to people or I fall in love too quickly, or maybe I don't mm. fall in love that quickly at all. And I need to open up my guards and do a better job of connecting with women or, you know, whatever it is. I'm curious what your um, thoughts are about that. Well, I mean, <laughs> you listed like a whole bunch of them, like spot on. Um, yeah. It's, that's just it. It's like, you know, the idea of repression is kind of an old Freudian term. Uh, the science of it, we know it's it's called dissociation. Uh, the the parts of self that just aren't appropriate, we just stop associating with them, and that that works because humans adapt so well. I'll just become what keeps the family afloat and reduces stress. You know, man, my dad's angry and my mom looks scared when I'm sensitive, so I won't be, and it works. But usually, uh, once adulthood hits. Uh, the, those seeds start to grow of, of what was dissociated. And, and to be more metaphorical, the Jungian term, the shadow, which is the repository for all the things we can't look at about ourselves, it all gets hucked into there, into sort of this unconscious storage space. And you don't get a free ride. Um, shadow material finds a way to express itself. Why? Because we're homeostatic. We're always seeking towards wholeness. And of course we are. We're biological mechanisms in a world of processes just in the same way that the sun shines light down plants grow our hearts pump blood circulates through us everything's growing towards a homeostatic wholeness and so it is with the psyche so those dissociated pieces seek to be heard and expressed somehow and for one person it'll manifest in addictive behavior for others an addiction to love for others, avoidant attachment for some folks, it'll, and men often the dissociative split will turn up somatically or physiologically where the body, they say, if the emotions don't get your attention, then your body will, and things start to go wrong in a physical way. And one of the more scientifically viewed ones is, is the polyvagal theory, which describes how basically we just, we don't breathe as well. We don't digest as well. Um, the, the sort of, autonomic rest and digest system stays offline as we're kind of stuck on these hypervigilant states trying to resolve a threat that doesn't even exist anymore so wow. the the costs you know they're 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 pretty big and yet there's a lot of hope you know we just need to start to look at these parts with curiosity i'm, I'm very curious about addiction how, how could how, how would repressed childhood emotion lead to addictive behavior well just think about the emotional expensiveness of keeping yourself out of your um think about the fatigue that has like emotional need or sensitivity keeps coming up and then a, 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 a fearful response happens inside so now you've got your sympathetic nervous system saying no you're you're holding a beach ball underwater that wants to pop up and explode. This is physically taxing. And when people do this over time, they'll either float up in a sympathetic anxiety or they'll drop into like a dorsal vagal numbness. And it just feels lousy. 
it does, it's just a bad feeling. And addiction is a very clever way of regulating your chemicals and experiencing some pleasure and getting a reprieve from either numbness or anxiety. And so as the body wants to just exist in a state of pleasantness and we're not letting it, well, we'll find another way. Um, the limbic system takes over an autopilot and we'll go seek out something to regulate our chemicals and feel good. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm more, and I'm curious now about the unpleasantness that you're talking about and the numbness. So that, that kind of happens when you're not able to express yourself as a child, when, when you're not able to share your feelings with your parents, you kind of learn to put them away and you kind of, you kind of grow numb and kind of life feels very, uh, like it feels very gray because those emotions are kind of lurking behind the shadows. We are not able to acknowledge them or really to, 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 to really address them with anybody who has any experience or empathy for what's going on inside of you. Oh yeah. Oh, just, of course. Like th- <laughs> what, what, what a, what people go through when they learn a part of themselves is unacceptable is terrifying. It means I, if I'm a kid, uh Oh, part of me's bad. And if I'm bad, I'll die because my parents will abandon me. That's so traumatizing that if experienced chronically, the brainstem steps in, you know, and this dorsal vagal nerve running through the back of the body down regulates emotion. It just says, let's switch this off. Let's engage numbness because playing dead is better than dying. And you repeat this year after year and you get a lot of people who are just aren't connected to their emotions. And, you know, maybe they'll, they'll, you know, they'll crave something that's very stimulating. Maybe they'll like cocaine. Maybe, maybe they'll like the adrenaline of shopping. Maybe they'll want to be in dangerous situations. Um, Maybe they'll crave a hyper excessive amount of dopamine through social media just to feel something. And that dorsal vagal numbness comes up a lot in couples therapy where, it's it can there's we're just talking generalities gender roles are endorsed by everybody in all patterns but most of the time um we will have a, a man and, and a, a female client who's feeling more she'll say oh he's just so robotic he doesn't feel anything and i will find a kind way to say this is incorrect he's actually feeling so much that he's his system just says i can't handle this and it's shut off into numbness because it doesn't feel safe to be vulnerable and if you measure the sort of electronic frequency of the heart often the the male is like feeling more even than somebody who's actively crying and finding a way to release their stored emotion. Mm. And this numbness often translates to depression, right? When you've gone through some, some difficult things in your life and you haven't been able to process them, come to grips with them and to grow from them, you kind of carry that baggage with you. And then that baggage results in this kind of filter that you look, you look at the world through this kind of gray, um, kind of this, this very gray, dark filter that every, everything is kind of dark and lifeless. You're not really able to feel any kind of consistent joy or kind of luminosity of being because of how dark life is. And so then you're going to be seeking, like, definitely social media addiction or drug addiction. Um, that's Maybe that's what leads many people to psychedelics as well. And, and thankfully, they can find something there. But because of that depression, they... Um, they're unable to re- really grow and understand difficult things that they went through, and that develops their uh, addiction to various things. Yeah, exactly. And and as Dr. Gabor Mate would say, like it, it's a it's a clever and 
you know, even attempt at self-compassion just to feel something, to feel alive again. Because the unfortunate truth is when we shut down our uh, quote-unquote negative emotions that were inappropriate, we shut down everything. We lose our joy and life becomes very grayscale. Yeah, and I maybe I should talk a little bit about myself too. You know, what I'm exploring right now yeah. is is like, you know, as a kid, I dealt with a lot of parents and with just ongoing rampant uh, bullying in school. And so I kind of felt this rejection kind of everywhere. And I had a very low kind of sub-zero self-esteem. And I was constantly attacked and I was never able to really feel or acknowledge my emotions and how much I was hurting. Mm. Like I kind, of, I kind of look back and I wonder like, I, I it's kind of like a war zone. It's an emotional war zone, constantly being attacked and never feeling safe. And it's it's crazy to think that I actually went through a lot of those things, and, it, and it's really took my counselor, who's amazing, to help me realize this. And, and talking to you, Carson, privately about these things, um, it's like it, it's really crazy to me how somebody can kind of make it alive from that kind of uh, hardship, and. Um, like, like if I were to go through something like that now, I, I'm much more conscious and aware of what's going on. And so I, I would be kind of kicking and screaming, like going through that same pattern again. But there at that time, I, I, mm. I wasn't because, or maybe I was in my room sometimes. I Sometimes when I, was, when I felt safe in my room, I would um, kind of throw a temper tantrum and just get really angry and sad at the same time. But there, there was this sense of um, hypervigilance at school and at home and yeah. so I'm, I'm beginning to now realize how that's um affecting me now because it's uh, again if i were to go through that now i would be kicking and screaming but i i didn't then and so that i guess that means that i kind of grew numb to all of it and just sort of unconsciously right. just internalized this that you know this is my reality yeah you know my parents are going through a really hard time and i'm having issues with my mom and my dad and yeah, I'm being constantly bullied and put down at school for all these different things. So, you know, you know, life sucks, but it is what it is. We just got to kind of live through it. You know, no point in crying about it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I feel for you because well, it's a very relatable story. You're, you're just you're so not alone in it, but you were alone at the time. And again, how clever of your body just to hit the off switch and not feel stuff like I'm glad you were able to do that. Um, your kicking, screaming sort of sensitivity, that's a normal response, but, you know, kids are dicks and they would, they would have been, they would, they would have eaten you alive. And here you are, uh, a young, like very intelligent, um, spiritually oriented guy who's just doing the work to reopen his heart. And, you know, they won't get the last laugh. You, you're, you're a voice in the community and just watch as you unpeel all this, you know, there's the revenge is just your own your own wellness. Yeah. And, and also this pattern that I alluded to a bit earlier of, you know, you, you see this in other people as well. And I'm, and I'm curious if you have any experience with clients um, as well about like being so rejected when you were young by all the conventional kind of things, whether it's family or that school or other things, feeling so isolated and this lack of belonging and lack of connection that kind of forces you to find a different path. And in my context, that's finding this unusually 
successful writing path that I, I never really anticipated. Mm. But because I was so rejected, like kind of everywhere in some ways, not, not that my childhood was just total rock bottom. I did have great friends and great teachers and, you know, my parents are very loving, but I felt so consistently rejected. Um, I'm, I'm even thinking about sports as well. And, and I was never, you know, that good at sports and I was kind of a bench warmer, sadly, <laughs> you know, like that, you know, stuff like that takes a toll as well. And so, and, but because of that, I've been able to find this extreme success at this very young age. Um, is that, is that a pattern you've seen um, in your clinical practice as well of, of people or so rejected that they become really good at one thing in one area only to then later realize that they've been neglecting all these other things because they've been so rejected and have felt so isolated that they've been forced to kind of find their own path and become successful in this one um, area that, that can maybe yield a lot of financial success and wealth and maybe even relationships, but it still leaves a kind of feeling of, of emptiness and isolation and, depression and anxiety yeah i mean you're just sort of describing my um when i was most clinically active just my my client base for 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 years and years something usually usually between 28 and maybe 37 uh, there, there was this period of people realizing they'd done that and just burning out uh with the surprise to learn that stuff really fucking hurt when they were young and so they just poured their category into career success and these sort of status moves, which just was this dopaminergic, great feeling for a long time until they look and their relationships just weren't there. And if they're lucky, they realize that your heart is the only way to, to experience like satisfaction. Uh, dopamine is sort of a shallow chemical if it's, it's the only thing, you know, searching for power when, when what they really want is, is love. And, you you're a you're a special case in in multiple ways um one is because you you ex you encountered like a larger than life sort of exposure with your writing that that's just like quite uncommon um which is great but you know the buddhists would say like success can be as dangerous as failure um if done unconsciously and the other reason i think you're kind of extraordinary is that you're actually looking at this right now so you either won't walk into that that heartless sort of uh trap um or you or you still will and you you know you you'll you'll know you're doing it the whole time and you know no <laughs> that's on you if you do that yeah and i'm realizing more and more um and a friend of mine he's going through something similar is that the kind of the unconscious motivation of this this ambition and this hyper success i have at this age is this need for approval this need for mm. validation. It's like my inner child is saying like, Hey, Hey, look at me, you know, Rav is capable, you know, look at Rav, R you know, Rav is not a loser, S you know, sitting on the bench for a soccer team or being rejected by, you know, whatever, all these girls at the grade seven dance or who d didn't get into any schools that you wanted to get into or felt isolated at home, isolated at school. Like, you know, Rav is actually a good human being and you should look at it. You know, that's kind of the unconscious motivation for this um, incredible amount of success at this age. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you're, you're aware, you're aware of that. So that, that's, you know, that's the real trick. If, if you're able to watch the process, you got your, you know, you're waking up. So that's awesome. And let's also maybe linger in, in psychedelics as well. I have one question about that. 
like when dealing with inner child work and suppressed emotions for men can like in your experience is psychedelic something that can really help with that like any compounds in particular like i know mdma can be very helpful for certain men who kind of have very thick kind of shining knight in armor emotional guards that kind of prevent their insides from ever being manifested and expressing themselves fully yeah well uh, you know the most important ingredient even more than the psychedelic is just that somebody wants to orient to inner child work um if somebody if that resonates with somebody and honestly like you can present it through neuroscience i think everyone can kind of get down with it um then yeah as long as the psychedelic is well chosen the trip is prepared the dose is appropriate you've got competent um people kind of handling it they, yeah they're they're an awesome awesome mix um and it's it's trickier to say like which are the good psychedelics just because people tend to get introduced in clinical work with mdma or mushrooms but uh ultimately people kind of ch- find callings to find which plant or which compound they really have a close relationship so theoretically i think most of them could um i've seen great work on mushrooms mdma um i particularly my two teachers have been boga which i worked with for a couple of years and and these days i i work with um ayahuasca and they've had so much for me to say about inner child work and um what i think actually makes it more three dimensional than than classical inner child work or internal family systems parts work is how psychedelics you know forget just relating to your child parts sometimes people just spontaneously become children um some i i've i've seen quite a few people become infants and just start kind of gaga goo goo gooing and and just like kind of move into like a non-verbal state and then there's this opportunity just to love them because they're in this hyperplastic state just soak up love when you're little and you get a do over so like it's the most three-dimensional um inner child work that can be done if it's if it's uh, prepared safely mm. and and have you seen kind of broad themes of of MDMA specifically working with 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 men because I, I know many people have talked about that when when men are really not able to feel their emotions MDMA can be a good heart opener to really express those deep feelings that they have you there Carson yeah um can you hear me yeah yeah now i got you yeah i was just saying you're you're right like mdma it's it's often a introductory psychedelic well it's a, it's not it's like an amphetamine psychedelic but uh it yeah it's heart opening it turns off the fear circuitry um in most cases it helps people relate to their parts um safely um but one thing i will note i have in the last 20 years um not in clinical settings but i've seen i think two people maybe three ab react to it where the the emotional injury was so severe there is such a terror of love and intimacy that when they're in a state of love i've seen i know two people for sure terrified like they just they hated that their being was feeling love and intimacy and they they just kind of homophobic slurs and just like just terror of love and those cases like make me really sad to think about cuz when when you know the injury is so great that even to love oneself is terrifying um you know it just goes to show how deep the well can be for some people mm right but that's very, yeah not very not very very uncommon though yeah 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 i was just going to say yeah not to scare people into doing this but just <laughs> just to 
just to encourage yeah. people to do it in a therapeutic context. And, um, and, and if they're, and if anybody's looking for any direction with psychedelic work, they can reach out to thrive downtown and you guys can kind of guide them. Right. Yeah, we've got, exactly. We've got it. We've got a team of people who can help, um, assess, educate, and make sure you're set up to safely, uh, have interactions with psychedelics because despite what people are thinking, they're, they're not magic bullets where you just, you know, you pop your mushrooms and you cure your trauma. They take respect and preparation. So thanks for that segue. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Okay. I want to return a bit to the song here. because There's a few things I still want to talk about. Um, we, we did kind of already hit on relationships, but I'm just going to read out this part where Kendrick is talking about that. He says, uh, this made relationships seem cloudy, never attached to none. So if you took some likings around me, I might reject the love. Daddy issues kept me competitive. I don't give a fuck. What's the narrative? <laughs> mm. um, so in, in his case, the repressed childhood emotions has led to um, this, uh, this hyper detachment, not being able to really feel love. He says if, you, if people around him are showing love, he's very quick to reject it. Is that something you've seen in your clinical practice or something you can speak about? Yeah. Well, I think we, we kind of have like what to do when you poison the well of love, you, you know, you fear it. And, you know, of course I've just seen it so much. Um, Avoidant attachment is, is, is sort of just that, like the, the intimacy of getting close to somebody is really spooky and it's scary and so you push them away or you unconsciously sabotage it or, or just, you know, uncomfortably stay absolutely on the surface all the time or just become hypersexual. Uh, it's, it's really common. And, and, you know, the expression of that trait, it, it's, it, it happens in men and women, you know, it's uh yeah, it's, it's a sad thing that happens. I can, I can relate to it and I've seen it lots. And then, Kendra goes on to say, I think this is the my, my favorite part of the song. Nice. He, he says, what's the difference when your heart is made of stone and your mind is made of gold and your tongue is made of sword, but it may weaken your soul? Ooh. Such, such a, wow, really powerful um, few lines there. When your heart is made of stone, your mind is gold, and your tongue is made of sword, but it Ooh. may weaken your soul. That, that really that really hits deep. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, his, his mind obviously he's alluded to this in other songs as well. Um, you know, being filled with gold, you know, there's, there's so much intellect that he has, this poetry, this able to communicate things, and these insights about politics, society, violence, um, and his tongue is of sword, obviously, as evidenced by these rap lyrics are reading out here. <laughs> yeah. In previous in previous songs, especially the, the album "Damn," I think really shows that uh, those sword-like uh, lyrical skills that, that are actually less on display on this album, I think, um, kind of very intentionally. It's kind of a softer album, more about the emotions, uh, whereas Dam is much more hard-hitting. But but he says his heart is made of stone, and he's saying that may weaken your soul. I just This, this one just strikes me as, well, him, but even the danger of, of society, just because the the golden mind like we're we're in such an intellectually prizing society uh that often doesn't prize the heart and 
the cleverness of everybody with their sort of sword tongues. Everybody's very clever. Um, are they sincere, though? Are people vulnerable in declaring their sort of emotional sincerity? Or are people locked in a an endless Twitter debate with their sword tongues and their smart, smart minds and their hurt hearts? Um, I would... I would I would estimate that Kendrick's not alone in this. I think this is the danger. If we don't check ourselves, we'll all end up in that kind of configuration. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I guess the the other highlight is just the the ending of the song, um, where he's saying um, he he's talking about how men need to actually commit to looking at their mistakes and looking at the looking at their behaviors. But he says, till then, let's give the women a break, grown men with daddy issues. So this <laughs> idea that <laughs> this idea that because of these cycles of uh, repressed emotions in childhood and these things that our fathers have passed on to us due to the circumstances that they were in, that's then hurting you know, their relationships, that's hurting the women that they're with, and that's causing um, you know, various issues. Often you see women carrying burden for men because men don't have their shit figured out and it really weighs down on them. It's not just the men are miserable, but the men are passing their misery to the women. And so it's mm. just kind of uh, amplifying and uh, compounding the, the, the suffering and really just spreading it to other people. And, and I've seen this very closely um, when, when people really don't have their issues figured out and they're really depressed and they're repeating these cycles of trauma that they grew up with as a kid, then women kind of have to bear that burden and oftentimes act as kind of a protective shield yeah, um, for their kids, the, the kind of protective shield for their father, you know, dealing with that so that their kids don't have to deal with so much trauma. I've, I, that, that really um, hits home for me in many ways. You, you and me both, my friend. Um, yeah. And just, I mean, it's, it's hard to speak in, in just overall trends with, men and women but you know women have been allowed in different ways to sort of express and wake up to their emotional truths men haven't and it just sucks but a lot of the time in terms of emotional well-being there are a lot more unconscious men and that's why uh there's there's these chapters of men's groups around the greater vancouver area called the arca brotherhood which i uh co-led for um a handful of years um they're great because they're just they're groups of men coming together taking accountability not blaming but looking at what are their what are their injuries how do they heal them and at the same time how do they sharpen their swords you know there, there's an expression beware the man who conceals his or beware the man who won't show his sword because he's probably concealing a dagger and that's why i think you get these hyper masculine unconscious guys who are strutting something to, to prove something from a place of injury but it, it creates this fear of, you know, the, the term toxic masculinity pops up when in reality, um, a dangerous man who knows how to control it. I know you've heard that expression uh, is the sort of it's that benevolent aspect of masculinity that can exist and really protect the family. But be regulated, be calm, be available, be nurturing. And yet if there's danger, fuck, the warrior is going to come out. And not be in this kind of like um, leaking anger, angry emotion everywhere where, you, like you said, in the worst case, uh, you know, mom has to sort of protect the family from dad's moods. How often have I heard that with, with clients over the years, you know? Mm. 
Yeah, Jordan Peterson has this great quote about a man should be a warrior in a garden, not a gardener in a war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. It's something like yeah, it's like it's what would you rather be, right? You know the, um, yeah, you, I'd I'd would also rather be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a in a war. Um, yeah, so, but that that's you know this this is a whole other podcasts but i do just want to say i am a firm resistor of the throwing out of the range of of masculine expression and the the toxifying of the kind of like i okay look i i I did a lot of studies of of the negative sides of hegemonic masculinity there's a lot of problems but if we throw the baby out with the bathwater, we we lose like the the beautiful millions of years of dna that programmed in a certain type of um, just a, a toughness and a strength and an overcoming and, and these archetypes of masculinity that it would be disastrous if we tried to customize and just remove parts of personality because we're afraid of them. That would be way too simple of an analysis. It would just say um, aggression is bad, which is just nonsense. We need the whole range of it. What we need is a safe relationship to all the aspects of who we are. And, you know, there's a range of masculinity that can be loved into. So, you know, we've got complete families instead of just like, um, you know, personalities customized and parts of masculinity removed just because we think as the flavor of the month, we should do that. That would be disastrous. Mm. Yeah, and, and we're seeing this over the past five, six years within our media and within pop culture, this growing kind of demonization of toxic masculinity. You know, like, well, you know, where do you think that's kind of coming from? And, you know, where is that right? But where is that maybe going wrong? And, and like you said, could lead to disaster. Well, and I get it, right? Because things move in cycles. And there was such an emphasis of the the masculine kind of control construct across the whole 20th century, like the, the aggression of men was so prized, like even in the nineties that it just got too far. And so people were exhausted and fatigued. So the waves turn the other way and say toxic masculinity. But the problem is both of them are extremes. The, the response is, is like, just like shut the whole show down in this sort of black and white thinking, um, which, you know, the way I see it is, the more uncomfortable reconciliation is everyone having a yeah kind of uncomfortable talk about how we all need to sort of coexist with our full range instead of just using the sensational catastrophic thinking that like um you know we should just again remove aspects of traditional masculine socialization i think it's just too simple of an analysis Mm. yeah and, and i think that explains the kind of political rise and popularity of jordan peterson who's been very emphatically rejecting that much to the chagrin of the kind of liberal orthodoxy kind of political correctness mob. He's, he's really speaking to a lot of young men who kind of feel uh, disaffected and feel like their voices are not being heard, that they're being pushed in a more and more simplistic kind of box of what they should be and what they're allowed to be in our growingly more and more politically correct and kind of feminized culture in some, in some respects. Right. Yeah. yeah, Well, yeah. And like the danger is in the same way we talked about people having to dissociate from parts of of who they are. If there's like a fearful narrative around masculinity, boys will 
grow up with a, a, a fearful dissociative relationship to who they are. So I think part of explaining Peterson's, the, you know, glint in, in a young man's eye he puts is, is just having a voice that says, you're good, bud. Like, you don't need to be ashamed of parts of yourself. And, you know, do, does, um, again, it, it, it's complicated, but I think that's a major explainer of why he, he presents as just such a breath of relief from uh, the, the sort of, yeah, ex- again, a shameful relationship to self that can kind of creep up. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just want I have, I have just one question about this for a few more minutes, if you don't mind, to return to yeah. the inner child stuff here. I'm just going to read a quote of this excellent book by Lucia Cappuccione, who was recommended by my counselor at Thrive Downtown. This book called Recovery of Your Inner Child. And it says um, that without awareness, we automatically repeat the kind of parenting we received as a child. And recovery of our inner child is the way to begin anew and to heal your life. Um, and there's, there's several other quotes that illustrate this point uh, really well. And the, the book talks a lot about how failing to acknowledge our inner child leads to chronic anxiety, fear, shame, anger, and despair in our inner child. And for many people, it leads to physical problems, as it did for this author. It, it really took, she, she was kind of going all over the place with different doctors, different harmful pharmaceutical drugs yeah. um, to alleviate this pain that she was feeling um, and these chronic uh, health problems that she was having. And it, later it occurred to her that what she was looking for, well, what she needed was deep psychological relief and expression and blossoming of her inner child rather than over-the-counter pharmaceutical drug to, to deal with what's really a, a deep-rooted problem from childhood and you know my thoughts a lot about this it's it's very interesting to see people um refuse to acknowledge this kind of work and i've seen this a bit in my family and thankfully my mom doesn't listen or read to a lot of my things for weird but funny kind of reasons (laughs) she's definitely not listening to this but she she, she's super funny she there's this idea within um indian culture of like if you if you listen too much or give too much attention to, to like a child who's succeeding in life, then that might maybe kind of, um, what's what sort of, it might kind of jinx it. So I, I it's, it's funny the way, um, in my writing, I really talk about my mom because she's never going to listen to this or read this because she knows how successful I am and she doesn't want to associate with it. Um, oh, yeah. um, it, it's, it's funny, but anyways, so, so like one thing, you know, that I'm very open, um, that, that I'm very, open to talk about Sorry. there's some disturbance in your background there <laughs> so yeah I, I just i was outside and it got quite cold so I, I just popped in sorry for that no no worries all good yeah, yeah so i was talking to my mom about this about inner child work and you know talking to her about um certain issues that she's dealing with and, and you know she's very stoical and doesn't present a lot of pain but i know she's kind of hurting on the inside and i was telling her about counseling and about doing inner child work and the kind of response that she had was more about, like, you know, you should stay in the present moment. There's no need to go in the past. And this very kind of spiritual Eastern approach that kind of Sam Harris encourages, which has its merits and is wonderful. But it is, I think, wrong to just focus on the present moment and not be willing to look at the past and see how it's 
affecting you, maybe out of fear, maybe out of, you know, fear of vulnerability, fear of maybe like if you were to go back there, you would get so emotional and overwhelmed that it would then ruin your life. So what's the point of going back there? What's the point of acknowledging your inner child when you can just kind of stay in the present moment and be detached from all of that pain? Because it'll bring up that suffering again. Yeah. Yeah, that's I've heard that a lot. And, you know, I say to somebody who says that, great, if that's working, awesome. No need to destabilize something that's working. However, that idea of let's stay in the present, that's what the front of the brain says. And the middle part of the brain, the limbic system, the anterior cingulate, which is wired through your whole body and, and has the quicker say on your emotions, it doesn't think that way. Uh, something that happened 40 years ago happened right now for it. It doesn't have a clock. So the front of the brain says, well, let's just stay in the present. Whereas your primal brain just says, what? <laughs> We're always in the present. What are you talking about? And it's responding to abuse that happened a very, very long time ago. So it's totally fine to say, let go live in the present. But just remember, your procedural body memory uh, isn't isn't on that same page and it's feeling things uh from whatever it wired to and you can heal it by willingly approaching those feelings staying with them in a safe relationship and expressing and completing them mm. and and do you think that's um, important for a lot of people to really live a joyful and fulfilling life is to do that inner child work even if they're hesitant to do it for fear that it might bring out certain feelings that they don't want yeah, you know, a, a younger me would have said yes, but I I found a lot of times I, I like when in my early years I'd sit with a client who they'd come in they'd pay money and say, but I don't want to look at my childhood, and but I knew better, and I'd I'd you know I'd use these accelerated tricks of therapy to get them into their feelings, and it was just really destabilizing, and it it it, it would sometimes make them feel things they weren't ready for. So I can't give that answer. I, I just think when people are totally sick of a way of being, they'll reach out for help. Um, and if they are content to sort of sit in maybe a bit of misery, but they're, they really believe this is best. I just kind of want to, you know, I say, let them do, was it sad guru or who was it said that? Like, let, let the sleeping, you know, leave the, those that are sleeping alone or something. Um, it's, it's important. I think to check how much does wanting people to change come from a place of, what we need or is that gener generally what they need and want, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that, that insight. Cause I, I was kind of telling my mom, like, you know, you, you should be doing this inner child work. I think it would be really important from you, you know, having a dad who was kind of estranged and an alcoholic and a, a mother who was a little abusive and who kind of passed away um, earlier than she should have. And, you know, it's, it's really amazing to me how you know, my mom, you know, is very stoical doesn't display a lot of pain and suffering and she seems you know she's very much in the present moment she gets things done she's a very very high discipline person and i mean and i'm very inclined to kind of push her in that direction of going towards her inner child and, and, and my instinct says that that is something that she'll want to do but, but but maybe you know when the time is right i guess when she has you know maybe less responsibility perhaps you know because my sister's young and yeah, that, maybe that can be a thing for many folks who don't want to go there is that they have so many yeah. responsibilities and so they, they don't want that to be uh, impacted uh, I guess my, my, my only thing with my only issue with that would be that if you 
keep postponing it or if you keep you know w- waiting for it then you're next thing you know you're 65 and you're like oh wow i really lived a whole life for other people i really kind of suffered without ever acknowledging these deep patterns of of hurt that i have that are kind of buried inside my psyche yeah and and i know like as a compassionate son that may make you quite sad um but i've had to check myself in this because like a number of times i've I've, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to get my mom to drink ayahuasca and I'm like ignoring the fact that she doesn't really seem to want to. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess it's just me like projecting something I kind of need on that. Meanwhile, um, she's giving me all these very clear signals of the things that do make her happy. And, um, and, you know, she's been pursuing some of them lately and it's like, you know, parents are humans and they'll give the signals of what they want and what they need. And, uh, your mom's giving this, she, she really is at a stage of readiness where she loves to, uh, just have all her T's crossed, her eyes dotted and be on top of things. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is like, you may picture she does inner child work and becomes happy, but for somebody with like a lifetime of that, the work just could be devastating. Like it, it could be, you know, eight months of just depressed grief of realizing, oh my goodness, it's way worse than I thought it was. And, mom's not online anymore and she's not able to do her thing so you know it, it the healing may not look as pretty as as we want it to for our loved ones so i've just taken to letting letting people just kind of orient you know towards things they want to do of their own volition and again another kind of broad question on that like do you can you do you have any examples in your memory of, of just kind of uh, i'm just kind of curious of like an older woman maybe who who goes towards psychedelics, like somebody who's very high, high in responsibility has a lot to take care of and have kind of pushed their healing aside and later in life kind of decide to pursue uh, psychedelics to really um, explore these deeper parts of themselves. Does that ring a bell in your vast library of experiences? Yeah. You know, the, the sort of clients who tend to find me um, and, and sort of do work, uh, haven't in a long time generally been, um, middle-aged and aging women. They, they just, it, it, and it makes sense. Like the sort of things I've helped with, um, tend to be people who've walked similar roads to me. I mean, I've, I've really had 11 years of a lot of, uh, a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of, um, female clients too. So I, I just can't really speak to that as firsthand. What I can say is no uh, friends and kind of and people in the community, um, and some amazing, just, oh, uh, remarkable women who I've met through the um, some of the academies I, I, I trained with and, and uh, special practices up at um, a particular retreat center um, and women, women of psychedelics um, who do the work. Uh, I'm thinking of some in their 60s and 70s and just their liberation. Oh, there's one who I wish I could just, you know, I don't want to say too many revealing characteristics, but she she was uh, she was down in in the tech industry and just she she'd been working for years and just high um stress and um big ticket and uh then her body uh she got cancer and she had to slow down she went through crisis and a death of the ego and um she eventually found and started practicing psychedelics in her 50s and she is in her early 70s now and she is radiant she is just as sharp as attack she can talk circles around you 
Um, and she's learned the art of surrender because that's psychedelics. One thing they do, perhaps the thing they do, is they teach you to surrender and release control, which is where the good shit is. And she's just in such a blissful state, like her eyes are twinkling. And she very much is the story of somebody who got their um, renaissance of uh, the death of how they thought life was going to be through striving and, and just like moving into a, um, a really peaceful orientation. So for those who want it, it's there. Wow, that's amazing. And, and just briefly on that, um, which psychedelics was she using? Do you remember? Well, in our in our connection, um, I I know ayahuasca played a, a, a quite a role in it. Um, and in during a lot of experiential training, uh, we were involved in. Um, well, frankly, the or, <laughs> the tra- the training, the group we were training with, there was a lot of different medicines we worked with. Uh, I, I don't think that was a good barometer for what she normally would but during that training there was um mdma there was mushrooms there was 5-meo dmt um and a couple others but uh i would imagine that i as i say that for anyone listening um psychedelics are best practiced with respect patience time integrate and kind of choosing one and working with it for a while rather than trying to check a passport of all of them but uh we worked with a lot that week yeah that's amazing um, la- last thing I really want to talk about, if you have um, a few more minutes here, Carson, um, yeah. is, is just about the broader um, spiritual um, overlap here. And we talked a bit about religion um, at first, and I was specifically referring to Western religion and, and Christianity, but with an Eastern religion as well, with spirituality, with mindfulness meditation, and the, the Buddhist or the uh, contemplative Hindu kind of approach that I'm pursuing right now and finding a lot of value in, you know, there's this big emphasis on, you know, being on the present moment and, um, you know, Sam Harris talks a lot about, you know, the future isn't here. The past doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. All you have is the present moment. This is where you can really connect um, with reality and experience joy and bliss and wonder. And, And the past is just this haunting memory. It's just this kind of fiction that that's no longer reality anymore. And I'm beginning to realize like, that's kind of how I started my spiritual journey is through meditation. And, and I know of many people who are still sort of on the meditation path and have been on it for, for several years. Um, but they're still kind of hurting on the inside. And, and I kind of wonder what your thoughts are about that. Cause I know you're also into to Buddhism and Eastern spirituality as well, but um, there, there's very little about really addressing your past and uh, understanding your traumas and analyzing them and, and coming to grips with them within Eastern spirituality. Do, do you think it's, it's necessarily important for somebody who is dealing with trauma to go into their past and do that kind of work? Or, or is it possible for some people that, that, that they don't need that and they can pursue a kind of Zen Buddhist path or a Hindu path and, that they can really transcend the self um, through meditation and yoga and be fully immersed in uh, the present moment without having past trauma inflict their, their present reality. Uh, You know, I, it makes me think just what's the context they're in Um, on one extreme scale. If somebody's in a Buddhist or a Christian monastery, I would say, no, like there'd be much less need to dig into the, the past 
Um, if somebody's in India and, and, uh, Vedic traditions are just threaded into everyday interactions, I'd say maybe there's less of a need in that context too. Um, in Vancouver, I think there's a lot more of a need because we're not in a Buddhist society where there's like a shared epistemological view where everybody kind of strives for a, a present meditative state. So if you're going to just be in Western society, I think, yeah, you, there's a strong need to dig up the past and, and kind of heal the limbic system because you're in a frequently highly cognitively demanding system where, where the minority of people around you have agreed to a certain spirituality. So I just, my certain stance is that just, um, you know, you may run into troubles if you try to pursue a strictly meditative orientation while being here. Um, I, I, I want to just the beautiful part of this, the system of chakras is that it creates sort of like a, an order to, to heal in and the very top, the crown chakra, the, the sort of final step, that's the realm of transcendence and meditation and just letting go of it all. But what the, the chakra system contributes is the idea that you need to do things in the right order. And the very first, the root Muladhara chakra is your root. It's the safety to exist. I have a right to be, I have a right to security. And once that's healed, which is that's very early childhood, you work on the second chakra, your, your sacral, which is the right to feel your feelings. That's something that develops moving kind of, you know, ages five and up and really experimenting is, is there a right to feel what I feel? Um, actually, I, I would say it's probably earlier than five and up, but is it okay to feel my feelings? It's like the Kendrick Lamar album moving up to the solar chakra. This is about power and, um, the ego. And, you know, we're in an age of a lot of bad faith virtue kind of actors saying, look how good I am and being afraid and playing small. But, if you have a safe relationship to your power, you're able to be powerful and use it responsibly. So I think there's a great injury to people's sort of solar centers. But when you've got an okay res relationship to your ego, you move up to the heart chakra, the very center. And this is, this is so important because this is the sort of loving glue between all things, the, the, the tie, the relationship of acceptance and fearlessness between all parts, the realm of the heart. Um, and then if, if these things are in order, you deal with the throat chakra, which is the, the realm of what, the truths you speak into the world, your creativity, your contribution. If you feel a right to exist and feel your feelings and negotiate your power, speak from the heart, everything you speak in your writing is going to be in good faith and is contributing to a better world. And, you know, you move then up into to your third eye, which is your this is really starting to get into the spiritual. It's your embeddedness in a bigger context, the archetypes, um, you know, religious deities, you know, the Christed beings. And finally, if you've kind of developed a health amongst all these dimensions, then you do that meditative transcendence, letting go, moving into the Brahman, the, the, you know, the kind of totality of spiritual um, existence and just the problem is a lot of spiritual types just start there and don't think you need to do your root work or your feeling work. And often it presents a sort of a hollow spirituality with like a, a you know, a bit of an ignorance to the, the reality that we have bodies with, um, with limbic systems wired into them that feel things very deeply. Mm. Wow. 
I'm definitely going to highlight that clip and, and share that. That was re- re- really well put, especially within the chakra system. Very insightful. But 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 at the same time, like with with meditation, you it's it's understandable what the appeal is. Like like the yeah. appeal for me was like like hearing Sam Harris talk about like you know the fact that you're suffering shows that you're identifying with your thinking, and you can actually attain this inner freedom to be in the present moment and not to identify with your thoughts. Like you can rise above your thinking. You can arise above just thoughts in general, right? It's creating that separation between consciousness and thoughts. And you can rest in consciousness, meaning you can, you know, drive, do the dishes, do a workout, um, and, and, and more and more immerse yourself in the present moment and let go of this baggage that's inside your head, right? That's essentially the mindfulness meditation approach. Um, like, do you think that might be a little misleading for some people or that might it's, not it's work true. out? I, I not like I, I I know I spoke like emphatically as I described the chakras for like a really long time. But meditation's great. Like make no mistake. Um if you if you sit in a mindfulness practice where you become the witness of your own process, you're gonna have a better time. Um if it, granted not everyone is able to meditate very easily and in, in some cases a trauma can make you more distressed, but meditation is good good shit like i know i presented the the chakras as if you should do all of them first but you 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 know doing crown work will benefit you it's just that while sam harris is right you can have a transcendent distance from your process if you've got big trauma coming up you're just going to have to meditate so much like the practice will be so intense that you do yourself a favor if you also do some shadow work and release some of what your nervous system's carrying like meditation gets easier ask anyone who drinks ayahuasca and purges they meditate after that for the next week and it's, it's almost effortless because the body isn't screaming with all these big painful emotions. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just thinking of one example of one individual who's been meditating for a couple decades now. And, and, and he says like his meditations are, are incredible. Sometimes mm-hmm. he has kind of borderline mystical experiences, very powerful in the present moment, really, you know, uh, detaching from his, his thinking and and, and 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 you know he says he's kind of mastered meditation and i totally believe him but yeah. he's still very very depressed very angry right um, right d- definitely i i think it's it's and maybe i need to give more credit to it that that if it were not for the meditation there would have been much, oh, much more uh, anger actually but and i think that's important to to, to look at but, but at the same time the underlying depression and um, anxiety for other people, this kind of fear for loss, um, this kind of high alertness, this kind of hyper obsessiveness, um, being way too nitpicky, trying to control people a little bit, stuff like that. Like it's, it's still there. And this person expresses a deep need for something, for something else. Like it's not meditation alone hasn't cured this, this deep uh, depression that this individual has. And so, you know, like is is that where you think you know we're reaching the limits of what meditation can offer, and where counseling and psychedelics and and inner child work is necessary? Yeah, and to take this is just my perspective, but yes, uh, I think meditation gives you a transcendent, distant, and and mindful awareness. So you 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 unblend from your pain, but if you do counseling or psychedelics or uh, somatic therapy, you actually reduce that pain. Um, so together, what a form of healing, like imagine you could both have a process 
distance from your pain, but the pain was also getting smaller. Like you're actually creating neurological change and your limbic system is stop screaming. Um, I just think both types of healing together are just like, that's lovely. Why not do both? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I, and I think it's important for, for people to do both. And as I, I started on this more spiritual meditative path, but now I'm finding myself first with the, doing the MDMA trips and now doing the inner child work with my counselor and, you know, thrive downtown is, is the, the perfect institution and gateway to explore that. So I, I encourage people to, to explore that because I, I think it can help a lot of people. Thanks. Ron. Thanks for the, I appreciate the kind words. Yeah, of course. Um, do we have any questions from listeners before we uh, wrap this up here? If anybody has any questions, you can uh, line up here to be a caller. Um, and ask Carson directly. If not, we'll uh, wrap this up here. We have a question from Abby, who hails from Australia. Oh, nice. Hey, Abby. Uh, we can barely hear you. It's a little quiet, mate, but we're doing well. I can kind of, I can kind of hear here. I'll just turn my volume up really good, but it is pretty quiet. I think he's going to turn on his Bluetooth or something. <laughs> okay, uh, who who knows? We'll do our best. Uh, it's just it's very it's very quiet, but uh, technically yes. What what do you want to get from the trip? What's what's your intention? Right. Um. Yeah. So I, I, my curiosity is: have you you said you did on uh, one other uh, other trip already? Yeah. Well, which I'm wondering in in both of them, did you find one of them more helpful or or kind of to put you more insightfully in touch with yourself right um the part part i'm hesitant to answer is because psychedelics are more about the relationship you have with them more than one of them just sort of being the better tool um i know for me mushrooms they tend to make me do hard can you hear me yeah sorry you cut out mushroom just for me mushrooms they make me do hard work they tend to teach me hard lessons i feel a lot of anxiety i purge pain out of my body they make me feel things from my childhood whereas lsd tends to be very spiritual it tends to connect me to the sort of trend transcendent very crown chakra um unified connection to the whole cosmos sort of thing uh, so that's for me and so i my encouragement for you would just be to check what sort of relationship do you find with mushrooms and LSD and, and do, do any of those contain the hints of which one might, uh, might be a little closer to what you're trying to untie there? Yeah. Yeah. Fair. You know, that, that makes sense. Um, I guess you, you just want to explore, like you say, something's just out of your awareness and, you know, um, I just, again, this is just for me, but like I find mushrooms to be more therapeutic Whereas I find LSD almost a little numbing from emotions. Like there's just, a, we just transcend the whole thing instead of having to do some of the deeper work. So I usually therapy, well, I, I actually don't work with LSD in sort of a, a therapeutic context. Um, but it would just be, you know, are you looking for a sort of spiritual thing or is, is it more with inner kind of emotional work, you know? Mm, nice. Yeah. Um, I, and it's a cop out answer, but I just, I encourage you to just to do some searching inwards and see if you can decide between the two in maybe less logic and more, uh, meditating and just seeing if an answer comes up, see if there's an inclination towards one of them. Cause those callings 
tend to produce better results than trying to pros and cons list it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah, and not that I have any depth of experience that you have, Carson, but but maybe for somebody in that position, uh, MDMA or ayahuasca might be an option too, like something that they haven't tried possibly. Mm. But that could be something to explore, right? Yeah, it, it can be, but I'm I'm just a big stickler to what do you feel the calling towards, you know? Because there, there's usually just you just get this seed in your head and think, you know, I woke up and I couldn't stop thinking about ayahuasca and I Googled it. And yeah, you got to kind of just follow that. Yeah. Sorry, were you saying there's something, Abby? Yeah, were you saying something? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, well, I, I wish you luck in your journey. Let us know uh, how it goes. Um, but hopefully you make the right decision and you're able to be- become aware of what's uh, lurking in the shadows for you. All right, Carson, it was great having you on. Really appreciate the conversation. Hey, that was a, a lot of fun, Rev. Thanks for thanks for the chat. Just thanks for those who tuned in. Yeah, and, and thanks to Kendrick Lamar, of course, for, for fostering and creating this conversation. I mean, you know, art, Art inspires conversation, inspires introspection. And so I'm listening to this album, which, which by the way, I'm, I'm not actually a fan of musically or even ly- lyrically. I think it overall falls much short of the, 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 the marvelous um, kind of cinematic experiences that To Pimp a Butterfly, Good Kid, Mad City, and Damn offer, personally. And I think the music actually falls short big time on this album. But but some of these songs like Father Time and a few others really express some deeper things that I'm exploring right now. So it's really incredible to see uh, Kendrick honestly explore that in this song and for me to really relate to it. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you're a fan of hip hop as well, Carson. And I'm glad that I, I just I, I really felt this urge to talk about this. And I thought we could uh, record this live and. I'm glad um, I'm connected to you to to have this conversation and talk about what, what not only what Kendrick is going through, but how he's this kind of uh, uh, vessel that God is using, um, according to him. And I, I definitely agree with that, how he's this kind of vessel for expressing these deeper inner realities that very few of us are actually in tune with. So I'm mm-hmm. very thank- thankful to Kendrick. I, I hope that he moves further along in this this religious and spiritual and uh, psychic journey, and uh, I'm, I'm of course grateful for you, Carson, for uh, for being here and, and having this uh, deep conversation. Well, well, thanks, Rav. I'm I'm grateful to you as well for for this and just for the invite, even for that other chat the other night with Eric. It, it's I love these conversations, so thanks for looping me in, and I look forward to next time we connect. Yeah. I think next time, whatever point we decide is going to be on your uh, Brahmin uh, 5-MeO DMT experience, which we talked a little bit about. Very oh, yeah, sure. about that. And then that'll be a whole other one or two hours, I'm sure. That's a whole other conversation. But I, I look forward to, to doing that and also potentially having you come in when I talk to uh, Eric about his LSD experiences. And he's done several dozen of them. And he's just mm-hmm. beginning to he's just beginning to integrate them very later in life, um, several years after his experience and he has a big big essay coming out on my Substack where he's where he's writing about his experiences so it'll be good to maybe connect you guys together and have a, a bit of a group conversation and otherwise talk about your um your dmt experience and and, and, and the idea of brahman and kind of how that uh, relates to the human experience more broadly
Awesome. Well, I look forward to it. Great. Great. Have a good night. Okay. Good night, Rob. Good night. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.